Well, we are doing some psalms now, as we do every summer, and uh, we've gone through a couple, and this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 40. Those of you who are uh, roughly my age uh, around then would, uh, when you hear these words read, will probably be taken back to the U2 song, 40, uh, which Michelle said she immediately started singing it when I said I was uh, going with Psalm 40, and then Eric, Michael, and I went back and forth about whether or not he was going to do a solo today uh, singing the U2 song. So, uh, sorry, try to keep your mind off of that and we will uh, try to focus it on God's Word. Psalm 40. Oh, by the way, if you have a Bible with you, as always, please, I'd encourage you to follow along. If you don't have a Bible and, uh, and, and are new here, or maybe you don't own a Bible, uh, we do have them for you to use. And if you look in the uh, seat back in front of you underneath, uh, you'll find a Bible there. And uh, in that Bible, you'll find Psalm 40 on pages 468 and 469. Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, Yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips. As you know, O Lord, I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointment altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. What we see here at the very beginning of this psalm, 
that David is thinking back. He's thinking back to the past and recalling a time in his life when he was in a desperate situation. You can see this in the language. He calls it a pit of destruction, that he was in a miry bog. When I read that phrase, miry bog, it it took me back to Jeremiah. When Jeremiah was, uh, the people were angry at his message that Babylon was going to come in and destroy everything, and so they didn't want to hear from him, and they threw him down into a cistern, and it had no water in it but was full of mud. And Jeremiah had to be rescued from the cistern. There was no way out. Well, David is speaking of something like that. And unlike last week's psalm, where we had the the historical context, and we knew what cave David was talking about, that he was talking about the cave of Adullam, and that trial that he was in, we could go right back and read that situation and see what he was going through. We don't have that here. Here we can only surmise or or guess, and and really it's probably, obviously God's Word is perfect, but if you just think about it, sometimes it's better not to know what the specific situation is in the psalm because we can maybe more readily uh, apply it to our own lives. So we don't know what this pit of destruction, what this miry bog is, but we know that David waited patiently for the Lord to rescue him. Now, we can read that phrase, waited patiently, and we can get the wrong impression because sometimes uh, we wait patiently, somewhat leisurely. We can wait patiently for uh, our meal to be delivered to our table if we go to a restaurant and, uh, and we have appetizers and we're really satisfied with those and we're in a good conversation. And, and yes, we're waiting for our meal, but we don't care that much that it hasn't arrived yet. But that's not David's waiting patiently. The way David is describing us, it's, it's more like being stranded with a flat tire uh, on a lonely stretch of a road you've never been on in an area where no one lives in the dead of winter waiting for AAA to respond. He's waiting urgently for the Lord. He's waiting anxiously. The point that David is getting at is that in this miry bog, in this pit of destruction, he cannot free himself. David has run out of human options. This spot is so desperate It is so overwhelming that in David's mind, only God can do something about it. And so he admits that he waits urgently for the Lord to do something that only he can do. Now I wonder this morning, how many of you feel like you're in the same type of situation? I'm sure many of you have something going on in your life some situation that you're dealing with. Uh, Matt, earlier in his pastoral prayer, he he prayed uh, for those of us who are waiting for a loved one to be saved. Something that we know we cannot do. We've shared the gospel a number of ways. We've we've tried to convince this person a number of ways. We've we've tried uh, and we've run out of human options. We, We know ultimately that their salvation is in the hands of God and God alone. And so we wait, but we we kind of wait urgently. Lord, when is this going to happen? Well, the question that I have for you 
if you are in that situation, is have you cried out to God? Because I think that when we examine ourselves, I think so often some of us are so resourceful, we are so self-sufficient, we have been so successful, that oftentimes I think when we face a trial or a circumstance that we grow frustrated with, that we realize we, we haven't yet figured out a, a human solution to it, we yet nevertheless keep trying for a human solution. I think a huge part of our problem and why we don't naturally cry out to God for help when we encounter something that only God can do is because so many of us look at our past successes and we don't see God's hand in those. We think we did those. It's interesting that David was also a very resourceful man. David was, in many ways, a brilliant tactician, a genius. He was a, an amazing warrior. He was an amazing poet, a musician. David stood up to a nine-foot-nine uh, champion giant who had never lost in a battle when no one else would. And when you go back and you look at David, he, he says, hey, I've killed lions and bears before with my bare hands. This nine-foot-nine giant will be just like one of them. Now, if you think about resourcefulness and, and being able to conquer things on your own, I, I dare say no one in this room has been able to say ever in our lives that we've taken on a lion and a bear and conquered them. And yet, it's interesting, that's not all David says. Yes, he does say that, but it's interesting that after he says that, he says this, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear will also deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. See, even when David was conquering things, with his own hands, he knew that behind it all, God was the one at work. And so David here is finding himself in a situation where he cannot get himself out, but it's not unnatural for him to cry out to God. It's not unnatural for him to realize that his success has always been at the hands of God. Now, if you have cried out to God, that's something you're sitting here saying, yeah, Max, I, I pray to the Lord every day for this thing. I know that, that I can't do it. And I ask him over and over and over again, I, I don't know how many times I've prayed for this thing, and it still hasn't come to pass. Then know that you're in good company. Because that was David's situation. We don't know how long David waited in this pit of destruction. We do know of other people in biblical history. Think of Joseph. Joseph was, by no fault of his own, again, a, a very brilliant, resourceful uh, man who later proved himself to be an amazing uh, 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 servant of Pharaoh. He was thrown into a jail through no fault of his own, and we don't know how long he had to wait there for God to bring him out. It was at least two years. Some scholar, because Scripture isn't totally precise in how long he was down there, some scholars believe he was down there for 12 years. And you can imagine how long it felt to him, 
how many days Joseph prayed until God rescued him. Well, we don't know how long David is stuck in this pit of destruction, how long he was stuck, but he does say that at some point the Lord rescued him. And this divine rescue is kind of the starting point for everything else that follows in this psalm. Now notice that God does two things. He hears David's cry and he inclines himself to David. Now that word inclines, it means in Hebrew that he bent down low, that he stooped down to help David. And that's a great visual image because when we consider for a moment the magnitude of what David is saying, consider that God is the God that we declared he was earlier in our service when we stated our confession of faith. You go back to our confession of faith and we consider just who this God is. There is only one living and true God who is infinite in being in perfection. He is boundless, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute. The God that David was crying out to is the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. This God is entirely self-sufficient. This God is self-alive. <laughs> He was not created. There was ever a time when he came to be. He doesn't need anything from David. He doesn't gain anything from helping David. He isn't helped in any way by David. David wrote about this God in Psalm 8. He said, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And yet, this God, who is infinitely greater than David, in every way imaginable, nevertheless hears David's cry and stoops down to rescue him. And notice, does God do the bare minimum? Does God throw David a rope ladder down into the cistern and walk away and hope that David can somehow climb his way out? Does God chuck David a pair of uh, rock climbing shoes and instructions on how to climb up rocks and then walk away and leave it for him to save himself? No. Rather, David says God does more than he could have thought or imagined. God does everything. David does nothing. God draws him out of the pit. God sets his feet upon a rock. God makes his steps secure. God is the one who rescued Joseph from prison. God is the one who made Joseph second to Pharaoh. Christian, if, if you are waiting for God to rescue you from this miry bog that you're in, understand that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I don't know how God is going to get you out of the miry bog you're in. I don't know when he's going to get you out. 
but I know that he will get you out in his good timing. Now understand this, when I say I know he will get you out, it may not be any time this side of glory. You may die in the miry pit that you're in. But I know, as sure as I know anything, that in glory, one day, all the problems that you now face will be a thing of the past because of Christ. Notice David's response. David's response to God's rescuing him is that he sings a new song. What kind of song? What kind of song did David sing? It's a a new song. It's a song that he wasn't singing before. But now he's singing it. He says it's a song of praise to our God. David is sharing with us his story. He is sharing with us a a firsthand experience of a time when God alone rescued him. And he can't do it without resorting to praise. He's praising God in the telling of it. It's not a forced praise. It's not coerced. It's just exploding out of him. Remember Joseph. What did he say to his brothers? When he finally revealed himself to his brothers, he said this, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. But now do not be distressed or angry because you sold me here. You see, for God sent me before you to preserve life. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth to keep alive for you many survivors. So ultimately, it was not you who sent me here in slavery, but it was God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. When God rescued Joseph, he he could do nothing else but praise God, even for the, the things that happened to him. Now, most of the rest of Psalm 40, from verse 3 all the way to verse 10, through verse 10, is David's new song. Notice how much of this song is this song. One scholar says this, Psalm 40 portrays word ministry, that is proclaiming who God is to others more fully than any other part of Scripture. Look look at all of the ways that David says he is singing this song, if you will. I will proclaim the song, verse 5. I will tell of these things, verse 5. I have told, verse 9. I have not restrained my lips, verse 9. I have not hidden, verse 10. I have spoken, verse 10. I have not concealed, verse 10. Over and over again, David is telling everyone he's around of this divine rescue. God does the saving, and then David does the sharing of the saving. Now notice, I think it's important here, notice to whom it is that David shares this good news. He says it twice. He's sharing, he's singing this new song to the congregation, to the great congregation. See, we might think, oh, well, David is sharing the good news 
this new song, he's sharing it with unbelievers. He's, he's witnessing and evangelizing the world. No. He doesn't say that. David is telling not the world, but his fellow Israelites, the great congregation. Look at, look at all of the attributes of God. All of the things, the ways that he praises God in this new song of praise. He says in verse 4, Blessed is the man who puts his trust completely in the Lord rather than trust in, in fallen and often proud and boastful human beings who, who lead you astray into lies. He's, he's sharing that with the great congregation. What does he share with the great congregation? You see, no one can compare with our God. Verse 5. He, he's done so many wonderful things for us, I can't even name them all. It kind of reminds you of the, of the end of John, John's Gospel. Verses 9 and 10, he's sharing with them. God has delivered me in, in such a magnificent way, I, I can't stop from sharing it. Verse 10, God is faithful. God saves. God pours out his steadfast love to his people. And, and look at the fruit that the sharing of this new song bears in the lives of others. He says the fruit, go back a little bit earlier, is that many other people see the praise that I'm singing, then they begin to fear the Lord, and then they begin to put their trust in the Lord. There is fruit that comes from this singing of this song of praise. Now just a question for those of you in this church, the members of Meadowcroft. When the service ends, and you stand out there and you get snacks and you stand around and talk, or when the service ends and you go out to lunch with one another, as I know there's a lunch bunch going out today, when the service ends and you invite people over to your home, as Michelle and I are going to do today, what, whatever way in which you talk to fellow members of Meadowcroft or regular attenders or newcomers, what is it that you tend to talk about? Just think about your conversations. Do you talk about the uh, rising gas prices? Do you talk about sports? Do you talk about politics? Or do you talk about what an amazing God we serve? Do you talk about how this God has worked in your life? Do you talk about how He has rescued you? from the miry pit. See, the world needs to hear that, but we also need to hear that. We, fellow believers, need to hear from each other how the Lord is working in our lives. We need to tell one another that. We can become very weary of life in this world. Think of it this way. God has called all of us to be a witness to the world. But if you do it with each other, it's like the easiest training ground you could have. If you do it here, it's the easiest place to do it. No one here is going to think you're weird for bringing up the great things Jesus has done in your life. No one here is going to be offended if you share the amazing ways that your Lord 
has worked in your life this week. If you get used to doing it with each other, then when you go out in the world, you'll be used to doing it so that you can share it with those who might get offended or who might not want to hear. And you'll be encouraged to do so by hearing about what God has done for, his, for your fellow brothers and sisters. Now notice in verses 6 to 8, David speaks about not only being divinely rescued by God, but he also speaks about being divinely empowered to do God's will. Now, he says something really weird here. If you know the Old Testament, it seems weird anyway. He makes two statements about God. He says, in sacrifice and offering, you have not delighted. Then he says, burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. Now, what is David talking about? Because again, if you know your Bible, if you know your Old Testament, you know that God set up the sacrificial system. God commanded the sacrificial system. He's the one that put it in place. He's the one that commanded that they bring sacrifice. So, so how can David be saying, you, you don't want these things? Well, God did set those things up. But I think what David is saying, he is repeating here what God says often in the Old Testament which is that kind of going along with the sacrificial system while having hearts that are far from God, he hates. God does not want solely external shows of godliness. He wants internal godliness from the heart. God says this in Isaiah chapter 1. God says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I've had enough of burnt offerings. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Bring no more vain offerings. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. God is seeing all kinds of injustice going on in Israel. People care nothing for the widows and orphans and all of these that God has said to love and to care for. They're not doing that, but they're bringing their offerings and thinking God's okay with it. Micah 6, you've heard this probably many times. Micah 6, 6 to 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands rivers of oil? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? David, I think, is essentially saying that. He's saying, Lord, you don't want bare outward conformity without inward love and obedience from a changed heart. That's what God is looking for. And notice that David then says in verses 7 to 8, it's, it's pr a pretty bold statement to make. David, after saying that, says, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is written within my heart. Now that sounds bold, and it sounds like maybe David is boasting, but notice how David can say he can do this. How he has been changed inwardly. Again, it is a work of God. 
Verse 6. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. I don't know why the ESV translates that with a singular ear, because it's actually plural, ears. And what David is saying here, the Hebrew phrase is difficult, but it means something like, God, you have dug me ears that can hear. You have dug out for me ears that can hear. David was born with ears that could hear plenty of things. But one scholar says this, it means that God gave David ears to hear and obey him. He's given him new ears. What did Jesus always say? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is what what David is saying. In other words, the God who rescued David is the God who is empowering David to do his will. Now, Psalm 40 would seemingly end perfectly at verse 10. When I was going through this this week and and working through it, I, I kind of wished it did. It would have kind of wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow that David was in this pit, that God rescued him, that God gave him a new heart and new ears, and now he is honoring and serving and, 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 and praising God before the congregation. End of story. But one of the things that's neat about the Psalms, it can be frustrating if you're trying to preach through them, but it can be so life-giving as well, as that the Psalms don't often tie up in neat little bows. The Psalms oftentimes show forth a struggle that is going on with the psalmist. And it's life-giving for us as believers because we can see that God's people have always struggled in their walk with the Lord. Notice David moves, beginning at verse 11, he moves from past divine rescue to present need of divine help. This past rescue doesn't mean everything's perfect. That everything's hunky-dory, right? Notice that David, when, when he gets into how life is now, he speaks of having two primary foes, one, out, one inward and one outward. First, he speaks of the inward foes. He, he says, evils have encompassed me beyond number. Now, if you're remembering back to Psalm 142 from last week, you might think, well, the, the evils that are encompassing David must be Saul and his men. David seem, seemingly is always surrounded, encompassed, uh, pressed hard by outward enemies. But that's not, that's not the case. Notice how he defines these evils. He, he says, my iniquities have overtaken me. My iniquities are more than the hairs on my head. That's one of the ironies of life as a Christian, isn't it? We talked about that this morning in our Sunday school class. The more you grow as a Christian, the more that God is working in your heart, the more that he is uh, preserving you and, and making you new and giving you the power to serve him, the more you grow as a Christian, the more sin you see in your life. 
It's like the more the Holy Spirit's working in your heart, the more sin He's constantly uncovering in your heart. Such that sins you didn't recognize 10 years ago are now staring you in the face. One of my former professors, David Pallison, he said this, your sins once delighted you, but now as a Christian, they afflict you. You don't love them, but you must love them in some sense because you do them. But you don't love them because you hate them. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, he was describing exactly how I feel as a Christian. The Christian's primary foe is his or her indwelling sin. Luther talked about our foes. He said the Christian has three enemies. The world and the devil are two, the outward, but the flesh is the inward foe. Our Westminster Confession of Faith says this, once we are saved, there arises in us, I like the way it puts it, an irreconcilable war between the flesh and the Holy Spirit. That war goes on in the Christian's heart until we are called home and glorified. Now, David doesn't stop there. He goes on to speak of enemies externally who wish him harm. Verses 13 to 15. Some of these enemies, you see, are are inward. That's where he begins with his own sin, but some are outward. And David is pleading with the Lord He's recognizing that there are people out there that want to see him fall. There are people that wish to see not success as a king, but failure as a king. And he is pleading that God would make those who desire his destruction fail in what they're trying to do to him. Now notice... In verses 16 to 17, as we reach the end of the psalm, that the psalm comes full circle. It ends where it begins. He says, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. What an interesting statement. Here David is reflecting on this great rescue that God gave him in his life from this miry bog, this pit of destruction. And he's reflecting on how he had to wait patiently for God. He had to wait urgently for God to to rescue him. And you would think, that the psalm is, is going to end there. But the way he ends it, it's, it's like he's in a pit again. He ends it by saying, right now, as for me, right now, I am needy. Lord, please do not delay, because you are my deliverer. He began in a, in a miry bog, and it seems he's back in the miry bog. He's back to crying for deliverance. But what's interesting is that now, at the end, his cry for help is driven by his statement of faith that he's made. He's not crying to to help for help from a God with whom he has no history. He's crying to help from a God who he says, is my help and my deliverer. He's already experienced it once. 
at least. But this leaves us with a huge problem. The problem is this. God is now, by the time of this writing, on the second king of Israel. The first king of Israel, Saul, ended up being a mess. In fact, when David writes about how God desires obedience rather than sacrifice, maybe the number one thing that David was reflecting on was King Saul. Because King Saul disobeyed God's word and did what he wanted to do. And when Samuel the prophet confronted Saul, he said this, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And now, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And if you've read through First and Second Samuel, you know who that neighbor is. The neighbor that God gives the kingdom to is David, who was a man after God's own heart. David, who stood up to Goliath when Saul shrunk back in fear. But we understand when we read this psalm that David is not self-sufficient. Yes, he may be king. Yes, he may be righteous where Saul is not. Yes, he may have an inward love for God where Saul did not. But we also understand from the psalm that David's sin is greater than the hairs on his head. David, you see, might be the greater king, but he's still a sinner. And so David needs a savior. Who, then, is this savior? Well, it's interesting in verse 17, it's the only place in the whole psalm where David does not use the divine name for God, Yahweh. The rest of the psalm, when you look, it says capital L-O-R-D, he's talking about Yahweh. And here at the end, in, in verse 17, he doesn't speak of Yahweh as his help and deliverer. Instead, you see him use capital L, little o, little r, little d, the grand title Adonai. My Adonai is my help and my deliverer. Who is this someone? Who is this one who alone is David's Adonai? Well, it was the one that God had promised David. It was a descendant who would be not only David's son, but David's Lord, his Adonai. He would be David's son and yet David's Savior. As Paul preached in Acts 13, they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when God had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my own heart who will do my will. And of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. That's why the author of Hebrews, in what we read earlier, the author of Hebrews says that verses 6 to 8 in our psalm today ultimately applies only to Jesus. 
It is Jesus and him alone in all of human history who can say, behold, I have come to do your will, oh my God. When Jesus came to earth, he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus came to be the king that David failed to be. And he also came to be the sacrifice that David could not be. In some senses, Jesus too could sing that the sins that encompass him are more than the hairs on his head. But he wasn't singing about his own sin. When Jesus sang that part of the psalm, he was singing about the sins of his people that he bore on the cross. And instead of David, instead of Jesus looking at the external enemies that surrounded him and saying, God, may they be shamed and abashed altogether, those who seek to take away my life, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus is going to return one day to rid the earth of his enemies. But the first time he came, he came to be the sacrifice, the lamb. And that's why, Christian, if you are in Christ, you have a new song to share. You have good news to share today. What are you going to talk about when you leave the service today? Costco has gas for $4.99. Is it over that now? The Phillies lost, but Bryce Harper is looking great. Brothers and sisters, what news could possibly be better than that the God of the universe has raised you up from a pit of destruction and saved you? Be Christian, you, like David, were in a pit that you could not climb out of, and God, though he didn't need anything from you, though he didn't gain anything from you, though you couldn't give him anything, he heard your cry from help, and he didn't do the bare minimum. He didn't throw you a rope ladder and tell you to get yourself out of the pit. He didn't give you climbing shoes and instructions on how to pull yourself up by the bootstraps. He did more than you can think or imagine. When he heard your cry, he stooped down, and he stooped so low that he went to a cross for you. He pulled you out of the pit, he set your feet on a rock, and he made your steps secure. You did nothing, Christian, and God did everything for you. Christian, make no mistake, the Lord does all the work. We do not save ourselves, we are saved. He opened your ears. He gave you ears to hear the gospel. And like David, he's put his law within your heart so that now you delight to do his will. And even though you fail, and even though sometimes you still find yourself in a pit of destruction, one day, Christian, in glory, you will sing that new song with all the believers and all the saints for all eternity. And that is good news, so sing it. Sing it today. Sing it for his glory. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are so grateful. So grateful that you have saved us. That you have pulled us up from the pit of destruction. 
and that you have put a new song in our heart. Father, we pray that we would sing it, sing it for others, sing it for our brothers and sisters, that we may be encouraged this day. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.